0: our series in Matthew. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 5, that's where Mike's going to read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny.
1: Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your amazing word, and we thank you... That uh, by your spirit that uh, you take your word and apply it to our minds and our hearts. Father, we pray that we would be people who uh, are humble and contrite and tremble at your word. And now help us to focus uh, that we would change to be more like our Lord Jesus. And these things we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. There is a family I know who are mostly Christians, the adult children in the family are all Christians, who ran a small business which over the years, through uh, uh, just a, a lot of sheer hard work and long hours, had become quite a lucrative business. They employed a man who they knew, and who they trusted and they gave him a position which involved uh, him having most of the face-to-face contact, the uh, uh, discussions and the liaison with the clients. And that meant that when he left the business uh, and went and started his own business, he was in a good position to to take all of the clients uh, along with him. In other words, he stole their family business uh, to the extent that they had to close down. They had no business left. The consequences for the family were huge. Personally, in the sense that they didn't have a job now, It meant for uh, one individual retiring earlier and financially there was now no income from the business and they had no business that they could sell to others. How would you feel? Uh, Who could blame them for for feeling betrayed and hurt and angry? Uh, I don't think we'd, we'd understand if they wanted some kind of vindication, uh, even revenge. Recently, one of the family members spoke to me about how, as a Christian, over the years since, that she has tried to process uh, what was done to her and the family, to process her feelings, and how God had worked in her heart uh, to the point where she now wanted to forgive the man for what he'd done. And so she, she prayed for an opportunity to, to meet up with him. She prayed that God would set up the circumstance whereby she would find herself uh, in contact with him and where she could raise the issue and offer him forgiveness. Now that's radical, don't you think? I think it's radical. I I must admit I I teared up a bit when she was telling me this because for a long time I'd known of the situation and the damage that his actions had caused uh, for herself, for the immediate family and for the wider family as well. I teared up because what I saw in her, in her attitude and in her, her behaviour, was something very different to the, to the world. It was actually the very clear grace of God which was shining through her. You see, it's more than just superficial obedience, isn't it? Uh, it's more than just superficially obeying God's commands... Uh, it's more than just saying, well, I'm going to refrain from retaliation. Uh, it's it's radical obedience. It's unexpected and it's powerful because it's the kind of obedience to God which causes people to, unbelievers, to, to take notice. Now, I want to say that uh, throughout the, the Bible and throughout the Old Testament, that is actually very much what... Israel was supposed to be to uh, the other nations. Uh, One of the main reasons why God God had called uh, the descendants of Abraham uh, Israel and made them into a nation was that they would be his people, that they would be his very special people and that they would be radically different in terms of their uh, understanding of the world, their understanding of themselves... Uh, and radically different uh, to all of the other nations around. So that whilst other nations descended uh, into idolatry and descended further and further into the blackness of sin, that Israel would preserve the ways of God. So that when others would look to Israel, uh, they would see a people who were so profoundly different in terms of their character that they would be thinking, well, I, that's very attractive. I want some of that and would be drawn to God. Now, we've just finished um, going through the book of Judges, haven't we? Do you think that Israel, that turned out like that for Israel? Was, was Israel like that towards the other nations? No, by the time we got to the end of uh, Judges, it was every man did what was right in his own eyes. They had had actually um, absorbed the idolatry and the culture of the nations around who did not know God, and they'd become like them. Yet, as you look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is now... Uh, His group of people have gathered around Jesus. These are Jews, these are Israelites, the descendants of Abraham. They've gathered around, they've churched around Jesus and have a look at what he says to them in chapter 5. I'm going to read to you from verse 13 to 16. He says to them, "'You are the salt of the earth, "'but if the salt loses its saltiness, "'how can it be made salty again? "'It's no longer good for anything.' Uh, Now, they tell me, and I believe it, that too much salt is not good for your arteries, all right? Um, But we kind of like salt, don't we? Uh, Because salt, um, it makes our food different. It makes our food more tasty. Serve me up fish and chips without salt on the chips, and I'm not so satisfied. Uh, We like it because it's tasty. And the people in Jesus' day... Uh, liked it for that reason too. But mostly, mostly in the 1st century salt was used uh, not just to make things taste better but was used as a preservative. We kind of don't understand this living in the 21st century because for the last, I don't know, <clears throat> 70 or 80 years or so we've had refrigeration it has been common. But People in the days before refrigeration, if, if you wanted to preserve meat, you would rub salt into the meat and it would actually stop the meat from um, uh, going off as quickly as it would otherwise, it would stop it from becoming putrefied. And so you can see that uh, in a world without refrigeration, how important salt was uh, for preserving and for health and uh, indeed, uh, it was so valuable that sometimes salt was used as a. People would sometimes get paid their wages in salt. Soldiers often got paid their wages in salt. A- and we, that's kind of flowed through to our culture, hasn't it? Because we still talk about a worker being, wor- work being worth his salt. You know, so and so's, you know, uh, David's an electrician who's worth his salt, you know, or well, someone's not worth his salt. And that's the reason why. It comes from salt being a form of wage. It was so important. Now, as God's people, we are to live our lives God's way, to be different and not to be watered down, not to be compromised by the ways of the world. I do not know much about salt chemistry, although I used to work in a factory where we would have a mountain of salt continually and we would put that salt through an electrolysis, through you know, turn it into like a sludge and put it through an electrolysis process in order to get the chlorine from it. And then we would take that chlorine and we would then process it further uh, into um, polyvinyl chloride, PVC, plastic. So there you go, your plastic comes from salt. I digress, don't I? Um, but I do understand that pure salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride uh, is uh, a stable compound. And so why does Jesus suggest here that they are the salt of the earth but that they might become unsalty, that they might lose their saltiness. Uh, Apparently in the ancient world, uh, most salt did not come from evaporated seawater. It it came from places such as salty marshes and uh, therefore it contained many impurities. And so if you left your little mountain of salt uh, out in the rain... Uh, it was possible for the uh, sodium chloride, which is, which is very soluble, to be uh, significantly leached away, such that what you're left with is a diluted substance uh, with lots of impurities. And so what, what it had lost? It had lost its saltiness. And what's it good for? Not a whole lot. Apparently in Israel today they use that sort of stuff in the, uh, uh, in the roofs of houses to kind of um, uh, block leakages and things like that. But uh, it's not used for much and that you might as well throw it out. And Jesus' point here is that that could be us. If we compromise and conform to the world, then what good are we? What good are we? However, when we retain our saltiness, we retain the character of God, and people notice, which I think is why Jesus goes on to say uh, in verse fourteen that you are the light of the world, you are the light of the world. Now, ancient cities were were hard to hide we didn't typically build them in valleys. They tended to build the cities on the top of hills. And the houses were often made of limestone. And so when the sun was shining, the city would dazzle. If you were to look at it from a distance, you might need a pair of sunnies. It was like that, the glare from the, the city. You couldn't hide it. And of course, after sunset, no, one, no one's going to go and light a lamp and then cover it up with a bowl. Actually, the word that Jesus used here is more a a measuring jar for grain, but that's an aside. Why would you cover up a lamp? What's the point if no one can see the light? God wants us to shine the light of His character into our world which is darkened by sin. And why? Well, in verse 16, it's so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So firstly, you've actually got to be doing good deeds. People uh, need to be able to see that and then they'll praise your Father in heaven. How does a a person get from a point of being a non-Christian to a point where they praise your Father in heaven? Well, it's because they they come out of the darkness and into the light. And uh, that's the light of the gospel. So then, what will it mean for us to be people who display God's light? One of the key verses in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is verse 20. Can I get you to take a look at that? In verse 20, Jesus says to these people for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven wow I mean What's Jesus saying here? The the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were were absolutely meticulous in their obedience. They'd gone through the whole of the Old Testament, they'd written down every command, they'd listed all, they they worked out there were 614 commands and they obeyed every single one of them right down to the very last letter. In fact, they did more than that. They worked out a whole bunch of other commands and put them like a fence around God's commands that so you'd have to break one of their man-made commands before you'd even get anywhere near breaking one of God's commands. And that, that's kind of like, it's the gold standard in obeying the commands. How could you beat that? And look at the consequences if you don't actually surpass them. And it's especially difficult when you consider what Jesus says in verse 17, because you might learn to think, well, the the law doesn't count anymore. But uh, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so, is Jesus saying that in order to be salt and to shine God's light, then it's about obeying all of his commandments? And worse than that, you've actually got to do a better job of it than the scribes and the Pharisees did. Is that what he's saying? Well, a couple of points here. Notice that Jesus does not say, in verse 17, he doesn't say, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to retain them. He doesn't say, I've come to retain the law and the prophets. What does he say? He says, I've come to fulfill them. So that's a bit of a difference there, actually. I've come to fulfill them. What does that mean? What does he mean by the law and the prophets? Well, first of all, when uh, Jews spoke about the law and the prophets, that was a way of talking about Scripture, uh, the whole of Scripture. Uh, Sometimes they would say the law and the prophets and the writings. That was another way. of. Sometimes they would just talk about the law. But what they meant was the whole scripture. That's the first thing. Secondly, how can Jesus claim that he has not come to abolish the law when quite clearly in the New Testament we are no longer required to practice things like the food laws? Uh, That's made clear in Jesus' vision to Peter, that he declares all foods to be clean. And why is it that we're not required to practice the ceremonial laws. The whole of the book of Hebrews shows that we're not actually required to, uh, to do that. How can Jesus say that he has not come to abolish the law and then it seems that we're no longer required to practice these food laws and ceremonial laws? What's going on here? I think the answer is this. All of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in Jesus, in his person, in his actions, and also in his teaching. So uh, from the very early on and from the promise in Genesis chapter 3 about the descendant of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, uh, through to the, uh, the, the promises to Abraham of a people, a land and a blessing, the uh, salvation in bringing God's people up out of Egypt in the Exodus, the, uh, the promised land, the priests, the sacrifices, the temple, the law of Moses... All of the prophecies, the prophecies of the suffering servant, the prophecies of the everlasting king and the everlasting kingdom. That's kind of like a summary of the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, See what Jesus says in verse 18 about all of these things? He says that, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The sacrificial death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus as King, the pouring out of His Spirit, showing that God is with us, His coming again in judgment, and the finality of the heavenly kingdom. These are when all of these things are accomplished. And in a sense, it's it's not until the great heavenly reality that we'll no longer need the law and the prophets because we'll have the completeness, the fullness of everything to which they pointed. But how does Jesus fulfill the commands? Well, mostly because he fully obeyed them and not just because he could tick the boxes, like the Pharisees uh, could tick the boxes and say that they'd obeyed certain things externally. The obedience and the love of Jesus was, uh, it came from the heart. It was radical, it was unexpected, it was powerful, and it's shown most clearly when he gave up his life for our sin. For whom did Jesus love? Did he love those who were lovely? No, he loved his enemies. He loved people like us. Now friends, the only reason that God's light can radiate from us is because we ourselves have received God's light. Listen to what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 8 verse 12 where he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, think about the terminology that he's using there, because uh, Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and failed. But Jesus is the true Israelite. He is the true man. Uh, if you want to know, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know God's character, God's love, God's race, God's grace, then to whom do you look? To Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God amongst us. So what that means is that our lives are to be a reflection of his life, for we are to shine forth his light in our lives. And that is is a profoundly different Christian life to that which is simply a conformity to a set of commandments. It's profoundly different to that. Um, imagine that, that Imagine if I thought that I was really shining God's light into the darkness of this world because I was someone who refrained from committing murder and refrained from committing adultery and I wasn't a robber. Imagine if I thought that about myself. I mean, it's, it's good to refrain from those things. And, and, and it's, strangely, in some communities, that actually might make you... Uh, uh, <coughs> you know might be considered to be radical living... But most of the time, it's kind of standard practice, isn't it? I mean, there would be many, many millions of non-Christians who could tick those same boxes. And so people are not going to look at you and they're going to say, wow, you haven't committed murder. That's amazing. Tell me about your God. I'd love to know him more. No, God's character is, is way more radical than that. And so too should be our obedience. And this is what we're going to look at over coming weeks in Matthew in the in the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, to start off with in verse twenty one, have a look at this. Uh, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Fair enough. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, that's sort of like a first century form of insulting someone, uh, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, and the Greek word here is the word moron. (laughs) You like that? More, it's where we get moron from. Anyone who says, you moron, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, uh, most, people can, most people can say, I've never murdered someone. Most people. You might be able to tick that box. But are you a person who gets angry? And how do you express your anger? I'm not talking about righteous anger, at, you know, like Jesus turning over the money-changers tables. I'm talking about, are you a person who... You're just an angry person, or well, you get angry easily. Um, do you, are you someone who disparages other people? Um, treat them with contempt, even Christian brothers and sisters? Then guess what? Uh, you've broken the commandment. Uh, you haven't killed someone. You, you've, you've kept it on the surface, but in your heart, you've murdered someone in your heart. And Jesus says here that you've actually, you're actually subject to judgment because of that. You know what, I'd, I'd have to put up my hand and say, Your Honour, guilty as charged. On those counts, there's times when we all uh, become angry in an unrighteous way and treat others with a degree of contempt. And so certainly what Jesus has done here is he's, he's pierced through that, uh, that crusty surface of self-righteousness and he's exposed our heart and he's exposed the fact that we actually do need a saviour. But more than that, this is really a challenge for us um, if we want to be salty people, if we want to be a light, it's a challenge for us to repent so that instead of anger, Christ's love, Christ's grace would shine through us. That's the challenge. The Christian lady, she prayed for an opportunity to, to meet with that non-Christian man who had stolen the family business. Uh, she wanted to offer him forgiveness. That's That's radical. And then one evening it happened, um, she was at a social function and in the distance she, uh, she saw him, he was there too. You can imagine your heart sort of pumping at that point can't you, you know, ka-boom, 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 you know? Uh, this is the moment. And then he walked towards her and he greeted her. And they exchanged uh, what you might call unpleasant, uncomfortable pleasantries. You know how, you can imagine that, can't you? But then instead of raising the issue and offering to forgive him, uh, at the last moment she had different thoughts. And remarkably, instead, in, instead of offering to forgive him, she genuinely asked him to forgive her for any time that she had spoken poorly to him or done the wrong thing to him or had been unhelpful towards him when he was working in the family business. She asked for his forgiveness. I don't think that's what he was expecting. He knew his guilt. Turned out that it it had burdened him for years. And her words pierced his heart. For instead of hatred, what did she show him? Love, grace, right there and then he broke down a whole bunch of people around he just broke down and he wept and he wept and he wept he has now trusted in Jesus Uh, he has now turned his life over to God so that now reconciled they are no longer enemies they are brother and sister in Christ And it's an interesting ripple effect through the family as well. What did Jesus say? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's radical, unexpected, and powerful. Well, then in verse 23, uh, shining your light, friends, uh, surprise surprise, it's not about being religious and it's not about doing all of the religious kind of stuff. Have a look at verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, which we don't do now, we don't actually have an altar because Jesus is the sacrifice that's been fulfilled, but the Jews he's talking to had an altar... If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, offering up a gift to God, well, that's one thing. But to obey is better than sacrifice. How amazing, how amazing is it when we We take the initiative and we go to someone and we apologize to them if we have wronged them. If a brother has something against you, he says, leave the gift at the altar, go and sort it out, be reconciled to your brother. Now that's radical. Uh, Jesus in verses 25 to 26, even envisages a Christian who hasn't paid their debts. How about that? I've got some bills waiting on my desk at home to be paid. But he envisages this Christian who hasn't paid their debts. What does he say? Sort it out. And don't lose your salt by battling it out with the person in court. Don't do that. Now, how can we attract more people to our Lord Jesus Christ? How can we do it? Um how about better church marketing? You reckon that's that'll do the trick? Pump more money into advertising and re- rebranding the church, you know, <clears throat> giving changing giving, you know, adopting a really cool name for the church. That could be fun, couldn't it? I'm not proposing anything at this stage. <laughs> that could be fun. And, and I'm sure that that kind of stuff it's it's useful in terms of getting the word out, it's useful, useful in terms of Breaking down some cultural kind of things that might be barriers for people, etc., etc. However, however uh, research has found that in general, uh, those things are more important for Christians who are changing churches. <laughs> non Christians, for non Christians, the common factor in turning to God is relationships. Actually, getting to know someone who, whose life is so qualitatively different. In terms of being loving, forgiving, gracious, being just like Jesus, actually being a light into the darkness of, of their world, that's what makes a difference. So, what would it take to attract uh, your friend or your family member or your workmate, uh, your friend at school? Uh, What would it take to attract them to God? How about you? You. You might be the very thing that attracts them to God. As they kind of taste your salt, as they see your light, as they see the the radical uh, grace of Jesus at work in your life, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. And we thank you for his uh, amazing grace uh, in that he died for those who were your enemies. Uh, That whilst we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. We. We're amazed by that and we're thankful. And Father, we we just pray that we would be people who are not diluted by the the water of this world, compromise and uh, the uh, idolatry of this world. Help us to be salty, help us to be different and help us to actually actively exhibit your grace in our relationships that others might see our good deeds and give praise to you. Amen.